On behalf of this week's sponsor, I wanted to tell you about the amazing work that Deliveroo and the Trussell Trust have been doing together to support people facing hardships across the UK. To date, Deliveroo and its customers have helped provide over 2 million meals to people through the app and their Roundup and Donate feature, as well as helping to fund vital wraparound services provided by food banks. Deliveroo have also pledged to increase this number to 4 million meals globally. Any Deliveroo customer anywhere in the UK can add their support, and it's so easy to do too. You simply choose to round up your order to the nearest pound when you place it on the app on the checkout page. If every customer who used Deliveroo, and there are millions every month, rounded up just 10p on one order, the impact would be enormous. Times are hard right now and a lot of people are struggling to afford the essentials, leading to food banks needing to support more people than ever before. So this provision of meals really is crucial to so many people. The money also goes to supporting the food banks with financial support in the form of advice on debts and benefits, as well as connections, which will hopefully end the need for food banks and lift people out of poverty long term. A small donation in this very simple way really can make a huge difference. If you can, consider rounding up your next order on Deliveroo. You can give as little or as much as you like. Find out more at DeliveroofullLife.com. I'll pop the link in the show notes. Thank you very much to Deliveroo. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. I'm so excited about how many of you have subscribed to my new newsletter, Dinner Tonight. Thank you so much. It feels like a really exciting new venture. And I know that there are a gazillion free recipes on the internet, but really, I think there are too many. How do you know they're any good? How do you decide what you're going to make? Have you got hours to trawl through your collection of cookbooks or to look on websites? We're all short on time, and yet we all want delicious, easy dishes that we can cook during the week. Or at least I, I know I do. So dinner tonight is just that. It's something that you can sign up to that's honestly going to make your life easier. And really it's the kind of cookbook that I've always wanted to write. But somehow this feels more exciting than a cookbook. It's delivered to you week by week so you don't miss a recipe. And hopefully it's the kind of thing that you'll actually look forward to getting in your inbox each week. Anyway, I'm sorry to keep banging on about it if you've already signed up. Thank you so much. And if you aren't, then I will pop the link in the show notes or you can head to dinnertonight.substack.com. This has been a much requested episode and we finally made it happen, which is always so exciting. Gordon, Gino and Fred are back on our screens as we speak. The new season is airing. I think the biggest takeaway from talking to Fred was actually his work ethic. Success doesn't just happen. And I think it's always really inspiring to hear from someone about how they made it happen and what that journey looked like. Obviously, there are also some very delicious dishes in this one too. So I do hope you enjoy. My guest today is Fred Syriax. 
Fred has become known as the nation's favorite maitre d'. He initially wanted to be a chef, but having decided that the repetitive nature of professional cooking would stifle his creativity, he switched his attention to the front of house and has never looked back. Fred worked in Michelin-starred restaurants in both France and the UK and rose to fame back in 2013 on Channel 4's BAFTA-winning matchmaking show First Dates, where his warmth and charm was a tonic to the nerve-wracked guests entering the First Dates restaurant. A very successful TV career has followed and he's become a well-known and in-demand presenter. He is the presenter of Remarkable Places to Eat on More 4 and he also travels the world with Gordon Ramsay and Gino DeCampo on ITV's Gordon, Gino and Fred's Road Trip series. Welcome, Fred. Thank you very much for having me. No, it's a pleasure. So, Fred, you've lived in England for longer than you've lived in France. You've been here for over 30 years. We're going to get on to what brought you here in the Mm -hmm. first place. But what is it about England that you fell in love with? I think that uh, things were different than they were in France, in the UK, and it seemed to be, to me anyway, more free. Mm. And I think that you know, the horizons were were incredible and I liked it. But what I liked also about the UK is that you speak English every day. And yeah. I think that the reason why I come here essentially was because I wanted to speak English and live my life in English. Okay. Somehow, you know, it felt like living in a dream or living in the dream of my life or the life of my dream, whichever yeah. way you want to look at it. And, um, and and when I arrived, I just I just loved it. I love to speak English every day. I had a dream in English. I, I live my life. Yeah, I mean, it's, I've been here for so long now. But uh, yeah, that's what I loved, really. Mm. I love the feeling of being a foreigner somewhere. And although I felt very welcome when when I came here, I was always welcome uh, with open arms by by everybody. I loved how people made me feel. I am still a foreigner in the sense that I wasn't born here. This is not my mother tongue. You know, I always sound like that, which is quite funny now, especially (laughs) as my daughter is part of Team GB. You know, she is flying the the color of uh, the UK when she competes in uh, in diving. And and she speaks with a perfect English accent. And yet (laughs) I sound like that. But um, I think for me, it's a strength it's a plus it's uh, something that I love and yeah. Uh, yeah I haven't looked back how soon after you started speaking English did you start dreaming in English well as one thing I was very good at at school was uh, languages languages mm-hmm. and history that was my passion I loved that and sports um, so I think fairly quickly because I really immersed myself in, in the culture you know in the country I had a lot of of English friends people from Scotland or Wales and I just just immersed myself fully in the language and, yeah. and in the culture yeah, yeah amazing. So you're no stranger to traveling, we know. But at the end of this podcast, we are going to cast you off to a desert island. What are your thoughts on that? How do you think you'd get on? You know what I like about the idea of the desert island is that there is nobody. You can't hear a car, you can't hear a plane. And, uh, you know, the silence or the sound of nature, I think that'd be lovely. Yeah. So are you quite good in your own company? Yeah, I enjoy my own company. Yeah. yeah. So you won't be scrambling to get off the island? No, I don't think so, no. (laughs) So of your childhood, you've said, we didn't have much money and we didn't have fancy cars, but we always had good food in the fridge and on the table. My parents would buy spillet steaks, foie gras, oysters, lobster. They loved good quality food. And every day we had a three-course meal, starter main course and dessert and cheese before dessert. Every single day. So Fred, I'm very excited to hear about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood 
Well, without doubt, it's a lapin la moutarde, rabbit in a mustard sauce. And the most extraordinary thing about that dish, it is so simple. And this is the dish that my mom always cooks when we go and uh, see her. This is the, the dish that the kids always ask their grandma to cook. And it's very simple. First of all, you get your, your rabbit, you know, and you coat it in, in, in Dijon mustard, in French mustard. Mm. Um, then uh, chop some shallots very thinly. You fry them with a bit of butter, a uh, touch of olive oil. Once they're fried, you add your uh, rabbit and you fry your rabbit. And then once it's fried on, on all sides, you add a little bit of water, she covers it, and then she's going to cook it for about an hour, an hour, 15 minutes, an hour and a half, depending on the rabbit. But it's all done by eyes. There's no recipe written down. And when the rabbit is cooked, the only thing that my mom does is add a little bit of creme fraiche, I mean, a generous dollop of creme fraiche is always good. And then you let it reduce and let it simmer very gently, but very, very low heat. And then it's ready to serve. And every single time, at the same time that my mom is making the rabbit, my dad is making the french fries. And my dad makes the best french fries in the world. They're always perfect. No matter the season or the potato or the weather, it's just always incredible. And you just have these beautiful French fresh fries just done à la minute like that with the uh, rabbit with the mustard sauce. I mean, you're in heaven when you eat that. That sounds amazing. And one of the things that my dad does every time we have a rabbit in a mustard sauce, mm. he gets the head of the, the rabbit and he puts his opinel, his knife, which he always has in his pocket, and he cannot eat without his opinel. You know, this is an old French person thing, you know, yeah. to have your own knife. All of us in the family, we have our own opinel that we eat with as well. Like a pen knife. Um, it's not like a pen knife. It's a, it's a brand of knives. Uh, it's got a wooden uh, handle and, and, and a blade, and that's it. Okay. Have a look. It's quite famous, okay. Opinel. So it just it just cuts the, the head in two. He makes a hole in the head, and then he extracts the brain, which is as big as my nail, really. And then he cuts it, and he shares it between the children and the grandchildren, and everybody gets to have a piece of the brain. <laughs> that's what we you do you left me speechless Fred and is that considered the good thing that's what my dad does <laughs> but are people fighting over the brain yeah everybody yeah. has everybody has it you know because you're getting the brain from dad and that's what you do you it's know and, and my dad never has it and if we don't oh. have it he, he has it he give it to us it's oh, generous really nice. you know yeah. and what's his secret to the best french fries it's the potatoes, it's the way they're cut, it's the way they're cooked. You know, they're cooked at 160. Um, and then once they are cooked, then you just leave them up and then you bring the uh, uh, oil um, up in temperature up to 190. Okay. And then you put them down for another 5, 10 minutes, depending on how many potatoes, how much potatoes you got, and then boom. It's a science. Yeah, there is a science, but um, it's also about the potatoes. And in fact, just before I came here, I went to buy some potatoes because tomorrow I'm having a big barbecue and I'm making French fries. And it's my favorite brand of potatoes wasn't there. And this is the cheapest potato that you can get in a bag at my local shop down the road here. Anyway, I managed to get some other potatoes, which I hope will be okay. And tomorrow we'll find out whether they are as good as my dad's. So, you know <laughs> oh what I mean? Oh, goodness, no pressure. Yeah, no, no, because I know what good looks like. Mm. So if I don't hit the bar... Then yeah, it's going to be embarrassing for you, Fred. That's right. So your parents were both nurses, but you say that they could both cook as well as chefs. And I think you've described how your mum could cook the entire French repertoire without having the recipes. That's an amazing backdrop for a childhood. And I read that you only ate traditional French food growing up. And I think it said that 
you didn't try mozzarella or kiwis or have your first Chinese until the age of 18. Having those experiences a little later, do you remember them very vividly? Only this last weekend, I went back to France. Um, I went to see my parents. And uh, for the first time in about 10 years, I went back to the house of my grandparents, uh, who sadly passed away all those time ago. And my aunt also, Yvonne, who was living in a, not too far from my grandparents, where they were in the village called Grandchaux. And when I was going as a kid and later on in life to my grandparents or to my aunt Yvonne, you know, who was in Grand Show, all they were cooking was traditional French food. So, for example, you'd arrive and my grandma would make a beautiful roast chicken with beautiful roast potatoes. But the potatoes were grown in the allotment of my grandfather. The chickens were reared by my uncle. My aunt Yvonne, you know, was living just like people were living in the 1870s. Mm-hmm. And you're talking in 1980, 1985. They didn't have toilet. They didn't have running water in the house. They just had electricity. And she was still making a bread in the... Uh, in the bread oven behind the kitchen. But it was like a working farm slash house. And when you were going there, things were uh, cooking on the on the stove, on the fire, and all you would have, you would have things that were coming from the garden that would be in season, um, and everything was French, and everything that was cooked really meant something. It was a traditional, it was a classic recipe, and it was just all so delicious. So when you've eaten like that all your life, and this is how you were brought up from the word go, I don't know anything else. I don't understand the concept of sitting down in front of the TV and having, you know, for example, a sandwich and a Mars bar and a cheap orange juice. Do you know what I mean? You know, for me, I was brought up, you know, so you have your breakfast and we'd have some milk, for example, or we would have some bread. That's what we'd have. We'd have milk and bread and it would be in a bowl. And sometimes you would dip your bread inside uh, the, 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 the milk, you know, with the chocolate and you eat it like that with butter and, and jam yeah. or Nutella or honey, for example. Oh, yeah, we just put the bread in it as if it were cereals. Oh, wow. So the bread was just soaking in the in, in the milk and you just eat it like this. And it was the most delicious oh. breakfast with yeah. lots of, of chocolate powder. And then you would have your lunch, three-course meal every single day. And then you would have a little quatre heures, you know, like your snack around four or five o'clock, could be a fruit, a bit of biscuits. Uh, in the summer, my mom would make these beautiful, incredible raspberry sandwiches. Fresh baguette, you know, straight from the, the baker, you know, mm. really nice and crispy. You'd have the strawberry from the garden, all squashed in the bread, a little bit of salt, and you you put another slice of bread and you eat it like that. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. I mean, I'm thinking about it. I'm getting goosebumps (laughs) thinking about it. It was insane. And then you would have another three-course meal in the evening, but also it was very regimented, and that's why, you know, I like coming here in the UK because things are a bit more free. In France, if you eat lunch and dinner, at my family, 12 o'clock, 7 o'clock, you have to have lunch, and you can't change it. It's just the way it is because that's the best way, that's the way it's good, and we can't eat any other way. Mm. It's this rigid. But I'm rigid like that as well. (laughs) That stayed with you your whole life. Yeah, because when I was eating at home, there wasn't two days we were eating the same thing. I mean, another thing my mom would cook, for example, she'd do a stew, for example, with veal and carrots. I mean, I wasn't really... a big fan of this, the carrots, you know. <laughs> we won't tell her. <laughs> and uh, no, but it's delicious. And my, my dad used to say, oh, yeah, I did not like carrots when I was a boy. And one day I came back home and I was coming back from fishing and my mum, my grandma, had cooked some, uh, this dish is very simple dish with veal and carrot. And uh, that's all there was. And so I had to have it because otherwise I wouldn't have been eating. Yeah. That's the way it is. Yeah. I know. So often I think we do realise that the old way is probably the best way. They knew what they were doing and we've lost 
we've lost yeah, something. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, look, when I didn't like, you know, I mean, I used to complain. I mean, I still complain, you know, my parents cook something and I'm not quite happy with it and my brother is <laughs> complaining and my dad would complain if it's my mom and my mom complained if it's my dad's... You know what I mean? Because we're all foodie like that and it's got to be perfect when you come to the table, you know, and we are ruthless. Oh my God, and, Fred, uh, that sounds so intimidating. Did anyone ever want to cook for your family? A, fr- a family friend came in to cook for you, would you be the same? Oh, no, they like, don't cook in the okay, house. Okay. <laughs> they don't cook in the house. Thank you very much. <laughs> Let's move on to the second desert island dish. What is the first dish that you learned to cook? You know, I think it must be mashed potato and steak haché. Mm. Steak haché is a staple in French cuisine. You see it in all the restaurants. It's basically minced meat turned into a burger, but there isn't anything else apart from the meat. That's it. Okay. And so basically it's the minced meat turned into a burger. You fry it on both sides. You cook it rare. Salt and pepper. Butter. Lots of butter, of course. And then mashed potato. And mashed potato is anywhere between 50% of butter to, let's say, 90 <laughs> 50% to maybe 20%, 10% of butter, you know? Mm. So I like my mashed potato to be very rich. It's got to have milk in it. You have to have whole milk. Mm. Um, and you put the, the froth on top as well, and you mix it well with your potato. Loads of butter. If you're feeling very naughty, you've got to add some creme fraiche. And voila, this is, you know, the beautiful lunch. That's the thing about when you learn to cook and you suddenly realise all the things that you love, why they're so delicious. And the answer is normally butter. I mean, my dad, for example, your mum and dad were both nurses and they were working in the hospital, which was 500 yards from where we were living. But my dad was working night and my mum was working day. So let's say my mum was working. For the point, my dad was cooking. So he would come back from his shift at 7 o'clock in the morning, sleep for maybe 4 or 5 hours, and then get up and make us dinner for my brother. And, you know, you would have, for example, this... You know, he would just cook it from scratch. He'd get up and make a nice mashed potato from scratch. He would have the beautiful burgers from the, the butcher. And uh, because he would be very, he was very keen about the provenance and the supplies that we use, whether it's fish, whether it's meat, whether it's vegetables, you know, they're very obsessed with it. But it's not an obsession that they think about. It's yeah. just what oh. they do is the way of life. Yeah. But you can imagine you have your dad who gets up and cook for you. And for me, this is teaching me both about... It's teaching me about food, about quality of food, but also about reliability, uh, about loyalty, you know, and about mm. parenting. This is the level. There is a level here. And if me as a dad can't attain that level, then I'm worth nothing. Really. <gasps> I've got to at, at least meet that level, you yeah. know, and, and, and that's what it's got to be. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So he set the bar high. He set the bar very high. I love that idea of things that you do as a parent actually teaching about loyalty. thats I have never thought of it from that point of view, but that's a lovely way to think yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, my parents are the most reliable persons, mm. you know, uh, I know. I think it's it, its rare. Loyalty, reliability is very rare, you know, and to be able to trust people, but we can trust people to deliver, to be reliable, to do what they say and say what they do. This is amazing. And for me, that was taught to me by my parents. And and, and sometimes, you know, that's why I can be disappointed because you, I mix, this is the, the gold standard, but yeah. this is what I was used to when I was a boy. And this is what I do with people. Yeah. And this is what I'm expecting back. But not everybody does that. And no. you've got to roll with the punches. So your parents, as you've said, like they not only instilled in you this passion for food and taught you about parenting, but I think a lot of the conversations that you had around the table was about their work. And as they were both nurses, um, I think I read that you said that patient care and the service that they provided to the patient was really important. And it sort of dominated a lot of the conversations. Do you think that then has informed the way that you now go about your work? 
Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, my mom used to say, you know, we, we do the same job, but you look after people, I look after people, but when you look after people, they're well and they're happy and they're having fun, and me, they are not well, they're in pain, and possibly they are dying. Um, yeah, Fred, you've done your job wrong if someone dies. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. But also, you know, for them, it was about the patient. It was about the patient, the patient experience, the care, how they would remember being in the hospital and, and how we would make them feel, how they would make them feel. And it's all down to individual performance. It's all down to the team performance. It's, it's down to, to good work ethic, to, to being good at what you do. And, um, you know, the errors that could happen in a hospital can be fatal. But then if you think about it in the context of a restaurant, it's the same thing. You know, we are not here to make errors. We know our job. We are professionals. We are supposed to cook a steak medium or rare. Somebody's coming to a restaurant. They want a drink. They want a drink delivered now. And we say, oh, it's a drink. We just laid. I just forgot. And we think, well, it doesn't really matter. But where is the accountability? Where is the ownership? Where is the sense of responsibility where you take your job seriously and you are reliable mm. and you can be trusted? You know, because people come in your restaurant or they come to hospital and they want to believe you. And it's up to it's up to us really to be on the front foot. It's up to us to be charming first. And we have to perform just like we would want people to perform if we were uh, in their shoes. For me, that's that's what has been really driving me in terms of work and the way that I am with people and the expectations I have of myself first, but also the expectations I have of others. Mm. You ended up going to catering college at the age of 16. You were there from 16 to 20 and then began working in restaurants. And you initially wanted to be a chef, but realised that it wasn't for you because you realised that whilst cooking is very creative, there's also a lot of repetition. And you were worried that that way of life and that way of working would kill your soul. Tell me a little bit about that. You've done your research, haven't you? Wow, I'm very impressed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it would be boring. I mean, I, I loved cooking, but I was thinking ahead. I'm thinking, what I'm going to do, I'm going to be cooking somebody else's recipe. And mm. I'm going to be cooking chicken chasseur or boeuf bourguignon forever. I don't want to do that. Mm. And I did not see myself as this creative, wacky chef who... Maybe I was wrong because that would have evolved and I would have been there. But And I just made a decision here and there. It's not for me. And then I went front of house and, yeah, just the doors opened up for me and it was that. Yeah. I knew I I'd made the right choice. I think that's so interesting because that really resonated with me because, as you say, cooking can be this amazing creative thing if, if you're the head chef. But there's so many... I can so imagine many... you're cooking. Look at this room. It's, it's, yeah. it's rectangular. It could be square, whatever. There's four walls. But can yeah. you imagine in a kitchen, it's hot. I don't want to dis... Cooking and chefs, I think it's wonderful. It's just not for me. Yeah. And I do not see the joy and the pleasure in it. And it was interesting because also at catering college, most people, because we were doing both options, service and cooking, uh, okay. and most kids wanted to be in cooking because it was perceived that when you were a chef, you were of a higher level than the one in front of us. So the best students were always the chefs and were always offered the option to be a chef or a waiter. Whether if you were bad, you were just being a waiter. Ah, oh, that's so And that was in a catering college that was number three in France. I mean, I've said it in many interviews, even here in the UK, you know, the, the, the hospitality is very badly perceived. And if you're stupid, you can be a chef. And if you're really stupid, then you can be a waiter. <laughs> but mainly, it's all foreigners who do it. Because if you're British, you don't do that. You'd be in an office somewhere. And that's the way people think. And unless we change the narrative, and yeah. uh, you know what I was doing when my kids were younger, I used to uh, open pop-up restaurants in their in their school, and I used to go one 
twice or three times, you know, before we open a pop-up, a friend of mine would go, would be a chef and teach the guys, we would split the classroom in two, so they would teach the, the, the kids how to cook, I'd teach them the front of house and the operation, and then they would run a pop-up restaurant for the school, uh, the, the parents and the people who are working in the school. And it was lovely because it gives them an opportunity to try and to see whether they like it. Mm. But actually, you know, when you are in year six and you do that, you really apply yourself because you're able to understand, and it's about how you experience the profession and if you give a taster to people and you make it interesting and fun then they're more likely to to, to enjoy it yeah. I mean for me when I decided to be in the restaurant business my dad said okay you're going to go and do a placement with a friend of, friend of mine so he took me the week before Christmas I was working from 8 o'clock until maybe 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning for one week I was 15 <laughs> and uh, yeah and I loved it and then we applied to a local school I was I was accepted but my mom said, no, you can't go there. We've got to take you, we've got to, you got to go to uh, boarding, which is a school which is about 130 kilometers from home because this is number three in France. And if you want to be the best, you've got to be in the best school, get the oh, best wow. teacher. And that was the best move because that started everything because the, the school was amazing. The head there was running the school as if it was his own enterprise, mm. as, as if it was his own company. And he was not interested in profit or anything like that because it was a public school, you know, as you have in France. All he wanted was every single kid to be employed when they finished the school. And the restaurants and the hotel, you're talking about top restaurants, top hotels, they were all queuing up to get us after we finished school because we are so well trained. Wow. And so amazing. mission accomplished for him. And, you know, the teachers there, they were so motivated, so inspired because this guy really was just really motivating everybody and people were on the same page it was all about that vision and about the objective of the school and they were all working together towards the same objective yeah god how amazing so it's not only your parents but it sounds like also the combination of this incredible teacher that has really had a huge impact i think on the way that you've well, lived your life well everybody that you meet in life but mm. i think it starts really with your parents i mean for me it started with my parents because they have incredible work ethic uh, their values are very strong and they're very clear about what is right and what is wrong. And then when my mom said, okay, you've got to work with the best. And I followed that, you know, I followed that throughout my career and I've only worked in the best places with the best people. And even when you work with bad people, you just have to know that they are bad, but you yeah. have to know where you stand. So you don't get sidetracked by people who don't have the same values and the same principles mm. and you know because life is short you know look i'm i'm 51 you know i i remember you know what I, you know being 16 years old and starting my catering college but suddenly it goes very very fast so mm. you know there's no dress rehearsal you have only one chance to make it right and it's up to you it's your life and you're in control of your own thoughts you're in control of your own destiny and you never know what's going to happen mm. We're going to pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. What's the best dish you've ever eaten? I've eaten so many very, very good dishes that I, 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 I can't tell you really what's the best dish I've ever eaten. I don't remember a singular instance of eating something that was just amazing. But I am always looking for amazing. You know, people say, oh, you can't have amazing things every day. It's not true. You can. You can have great food every day and still appreciate and love them because they just taste so good. And that's the problem because I'm always looking for, for beauty, for taste, for deliciousness, always. I mean, look, the last time I had the uh, lapin la moutarde that my mom cooked, it was fantastic. Because every yeah. time I just gauge it, you know. And, uh, but I have to say she cooked it so well. Uh, it's just, and just with water. There is no white wine, there is no stock, it's just water. Just amazing. amazing. Yeah. Also, why is rabbit so much more popular in France than it is in the UK? 
I mean, I think in the UK, it's more a pet. I mean, it, it is a pet as well for some people in France, but in France, it is food. Mm. The other thing also, French rabbit is better than English rabbit. The English rabbit oh. is a bit tough. Oh, that's interesting. When you have French rabbit, it's much softer and, and the flesh is, is much more succulent and delicious. Mm. And the way, the, the way we cut the rabbit as well is, is different. Okay. Uh, so is it something that you try to cook at home yourself now? No, I mean, I buy rabbit here all the time. Oh, and you I do? cook it, yeah, all the time. But the, the, the flesh is not as good as the French one. I mean, I have to say the French one, the thing is, I get it from my uncle. And my mom, when she wants to do a rabbit, she calls my uncle. Okay. He killed the rabbit. The next day she goes and get the rabbit and then she cook it. So okay. <laughs> this is we- how it Works. We need your uncle's number if we want a really good rabbit. So from the get-go, as soon as you made the decision to be front of house, you say that you wanted to be the very best waiter in town and that that can come at a price because you always have to be the first in, you always have to be the first out. Do you think you have made sacrifices along the way in your career to get to where you are? Yeah, of course you make sacrifices, you know, but um, it's just the way it is. I think that if you want something, if you want to succeed, if you want to be good, uh, and if you want to leave something behind, if you want to achieve something, then Mm. you need to work hard, you know. I mean, there's a lot of questions at the moment about life balance and what it means and this and that. I think it's all rubbish. There's no such thing as life balance. It's either you work or you don't work. Mm. Either you want to do a good job or you don't. And it takes the same amount of time to do a good job than it takes to do a bad one. Um, But, you know, uh, I've been thinking, reflecting, in fact, about my own career and whether I could have achieved what I've achieved by working less, going to the pub more or things like this. And I don't think I could have. Mm. Because if you want really to have quality, you know, you're talking about a, a restaurant here, you know, where the people for lunch and people for dinner today, tomorrow, the day after are going to have the same experience and they're going to think it's just as good as the last time they came. <laughs> Somebody has got to do the work. Yeah. Because it's not just you. It's about a team of pe- people, you know. And the last restaurant I was running, we had about 100 staff. So 100 people working together towards a common goal, you know, to create an amazing experience for these guests. Everybody has to know what it means, you know. People come from all sorts of walks of life in the industry, whether they come from, from France or from Italy, from abroad, whether they have been educated and, and, and taught about catering and restaurants. But everybody has to come and work towards the same vision in one restaurant. How do you do that? And the only way to do that is by being there, being present and leading from the front and by example and teaching people. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure that I could have done it any other way. I mean, the other day I was talking to my daughter, as you know, you know, yes. she's a, a champion diver. She is the third best diver in the world. She's European champion, Commonwealth champion, junior world champion. I don't get bored to talk about her and to talk about achievement and listing them, by the way. Uh, but Andrea has been diving like this since she's eight years old, you know, doing competition when mm. she was 12 years old, 13 years old, being a British champion at 15, barely 15. And all that was down to uh, utter, you know, it's not talent, it's utter dedication, hard work, work ethic, focus, obsession. From Christmas, from, 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 from January rather this year, next year, she, the clock starts at zero and she's got to she's basically earn a place in Team GB's team to represent Team GB at the next Olympics mm. in Paris. Oh my goodness. So, you know, uh, the hard work doesn't stop. Yeah. And now she's on holiday, she's not doing anything. But as soon as the season starts again, she's going to be six days a week, going to be in the pool and she's going to be working. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions because that kind of career is is built entirely on like determination essentially and do you think that is a life lesson that she learned from having you as a dad 
Well, I mean, you know, uh, cats don't make dogs, right? <laughs> so uh, that, is, that is very true. But uh, Andrea, you know, she's the way she's because, you know, Andrea made Andrea. She's done it by herself. Yeah. She's the one who, who had to go training. She's the, the one who had to put in the hard work. Mm. But she saw, she learned lessons from you in terms of working really hard and what it well, takes think, to get Yeah, somewhere. I mean, I think with children, I think for me as well, I mean, one thing that happened with my parents, you know, one way we had a dinner table and I was listening to my parents, not something that for, they would necessarily teach me and ram it down my throat. Mm. It's something that you observe mm. and you observe it, you know, and every single day you observe the same sort of message, you know, and it's kind of, it gets into you after a while, doesn't it? You yeah. don't even realise it's there, but it's inside you. Yeah, that's true. By osmosis. That's right. What Let's, a beautiful word. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the most important question of the day, Fred. It's the fourth desert island dish. What is your favourite sandwich? Alors, favourite sandwich. <laughs> uh, I love a prawn cocktail on white. Yes. Oh, my God. Prawn cocktail. And M&S makes the best one. Are you going prawn cocktail, not just prawn mayo? No, prawn cocktail, yeah. Prawn cocktail. It's a bit of la la with the yeah. cocktail sauce. Yeah. <laughs> with white bread, though. I know we shouldn't be eating white bread, but hey. Mm, so good. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, that is good. Sometimes I add a little bit of pepper when I'm feeling, feeling a bit exotic. <laughs> that is exotic. And do you eat a lot of sandwiches, Fred? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're on the go, sometimes, you know, you're on a shoot. Sometimes you're on the road. There's nothing you can do. You're on yeah. the road. You're working. You've got you've to just uh, fill your hole, you know. So, um, yeah. <laughs> the most beautiful way of expressing that. <laughs> Um, so when you came to the UK in 1992, I think you came for the opportunity to work at Le Tonc Claire, which was one of the best restaurants, and you say that you wanted to learn English and it was a one-way ticket. Had you ever been to London before? No, I mean, I'd come to England on an exchange trip. Uh, I went to Stoke-on-Trent, I think. Mm. I had a pen pal there. <laughs> and I did another school trip, and I loved it. I loved being on the bus because I was 13 or 14. You could smoke on the bus at the time, and I remember smoking on the bus. Fred, yes. age 13? Yeah, yeah. well, I was smoking at 12 years old. You were? Well, in France, everybody's smoking. Oh, really? Yeah, everybody's smoking, everybody's striking. And everybody's <laughs> complaining about what the government is doing, right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you could smoke on the bus, you're buying the, the packet of 10, you have sandwiches and crisp and Mars bar and orange juice for lunch. You go to school, the, the <laughs> girls were dressed with school uniform, which I thought were really, really sexy. And uh, we, I remember at the time I was into kissing girls. I loved kissing girls. And I remember kissing 10 girls in 15 days. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Fred, oh, my God. I was you must kiss have thought you'd arrived in heaven. Oh, it was brilliant. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to come to the UK, because I was kissing all these <laughs> girls and I was counting them. But there was this one girl I kissed. Her name was Belinda. She was so beautiful. Anyway, I kissed her a few times. Like we were girlfriend, boyfriend, you know, but we were so young, 13 or 14, whatever. Anyway, I went back home and I got a guinea pig and I called it Belinda. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> she would have been delighted to know that, Yeah, I don't know where friend. Belinda is, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she was aware somewhere that's stuck on trend somewhere like this, yeah. That's absolutely hilarious. So during your time working, you worked as the manager as a Galvin at Windows. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I was there for about 15 years, there, 15, mm. 16 years, yeah. And when you were there, you won Manager of the Year at the Katie's, which is the Oscars of the hospitality industry. And I think it was around this time that the first dates opportunity arose. You were approached by the producer, I believe, and at first you were hesitant. Tell us a little bit about how that all happened. 
Yeah, I mean, I wanted to do television because I had done television before and that was down to the charity work I had been doing over the years, basically starting a charity to help disadvantaged kids get into mm. training, education, full-time employment within hospitality, within front of house. And that kind of led to the service program I did with Michel Roux. And then I really liked the TV, so I pursued it. Uh, in the same time, I'd started a consultancy business to help restaurants uh, teach their staff about service and hospitality, and I designed and manufactured a game called The Art of Service, um, which was basically like a monopoly uh, board game, but it's, it's, it's a corporate game to play with your team, and it's to give a structure and a method to managers and to teams on how to deliver service, and it's about the customer journey and the touch points within the customer journey, because there are always two sides to the customer journey there is to every touch point there is the what and the how but what you do and how you do it so for example if you go to a restaurant uh, you meet and greet so that's what you do how you do it you got to see smile say hello to people before they see smile say hello to you it's up to you okay. to be on the front foot so it's quite simple in terms of language yeah. but i think it's necessary to have that kind of language because not everybody studied catering and restaurant like me for four years and at the background. So you need to bring it up to people. So I was working all hours, you know, whether it was the weekend or during my holidays. I was working during the week, working in the evening, putting my, my game together, looking for manufacturers and all this, distributors to sell it and all that. In the same time, working weekends and, uh, and, and, and consulting during my holidays. And then first aids came, and um, as much as I was interested, I wasn't desperate. Mm. Desperate to be on television, but also being on television and being on the wrong show. And I'm very conscious that sometimes television can be a double-edged sword. And I wanted to make sure that the show was good. And then I could look at it and I can just show my, my kids and say, look, this is what I've been doing. You can be proud of your dad. And so that's what I wanted to do. So I needed to just make sure that the show was what I thought it was. So there was a lot of conversations, mm. a lot of thinking. But then once you've met everybody and everybody explained to you what they want to do and how they want to do it and everything corroborates between the producers and the channel and all that, I said, okay, let's go, let's do it. Because at the end of the day, I'm running a restaurant. The only difference with this restaurant is that people come for one reason, one reason only, they want to date the other person in front of them. And Fred, what is the secret? Why are they so good at matching? Because we care. We really, really yeah. care. So if you put in an application and you see, I want X, Y, and Z, we're going to give you X, Y, and Z. Yeah. You may say, I want X, Y, and Z and blue. And you go, oh, no, but X, Y, and Z. Mm. We register. You know, we read between the lines. And uh, in the last series, we just filmed, actually, it was a 10 years anniversary series. I mean, it was just incredible because we moved to Bath. It was beautiful cities, historic. You know, it dates back from the Roman. It's beautiful. It's old stone. It's mm. just, just stunning. And the weather was beautiful, which helped. And we we're in a beautiful venue. Um, but I don't know what happened. There is something, I think maybe in Bath, it was a 10 years anniversary, anniversary series. And I think it just gave us all a boost. It was very special. I mean, I can't tell you how... As much as it was the same, it was so different from all the other series. But this time, you know, for example, when there was a data who was saying, okay, I want X, Y, and Z, and there was X, Y, and Z. I said, look, you wanted X, Y, and Z. This is what you got. So what do you want? Can you tell us? Because otherwise we don't know what to do yeah. here. So can you give it a chance? You know, not telling people off, but no, this just, let's be real here. Mm. Let's talk about what you want. Why are you here? Because we're not here to play a game. You know, you come here for a reason. You you trust us and, and we do our job well. But now you've got to play your part here. You know, yeah. if you've got a cold feet, let's just talk about you having cold feet and the reason why you've got cold feet. Yeah. People are just worried about it. Or maybe it's a case of, oh, yeah, okay, I like that. But maybe I could get something better. Yeah. 
you know, and then you think about all the various options. It's never perfect. Forget mm. about perfection. You just have to accept and compromise. But do you think that's a modern day um, result of all the apps and stuff that people it's constantly possible, think? Yeah, because, you know, you have all this choice, you know, on the yeah. app. And if you don't like this, you can swipe and da 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 da. And I mean, we're all the same. You know, you, I mean, you can look in the street, you can. Look, you know, he goes, oh, my God, this guy is beautiful. This one is beautiful. This one is beautiful. This one is beautiful. <laughs> and then which one do you like? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Where's you, you can like them all, but you can't have them all today. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel quite invested in the couples? Very. Yeah. Totally invested, yeah. Yeah. This is the pleasure for me is to meet the daters. You meet one data, you meet the second data, and then it's about their date. And yeah. it's about what I can do. Sometimes what I can do is doing nothing. Yeah. That's all I do. And that's doing something. And at the time, I'm much more involved, speaking to one, speaking to another, speaking to both. It's about creating an atmosphere at the table, maybe also, you know, making it a bit more light and fun and just relaxing people so mm. that they can just feel good about themselves and be able to open themselves up and be vulnerable, you know, show themselves up for who they are and what they are. Yeah, I think it's the only show that I watch where I'm like grinning so much the entire program that my cheeks hurt at the end. It's like, a beautiful it's just, show, yeah. yeah. We're on to the fifth desert island dish. What's the dish you eat the most often? I mean, right now it's the summer and I have to say it's uh, barbecue. Ooh, yeah. I'm doing a lot of barbecues. I've just done my shopping. I've done some, I've got some sweet corn I'm going to do on the barbie. I've got some beautiful peaches I'm going to roast uh, with a bit of butter and sugar and just serve with a touch of vanilla ice cream. Mm. Um, I do some beautiful um, uh, uh, chicken skewers, which I marinate with all sorts of things, with lemon, with jerk spices, with rasalanut or whatever, and just put them on the barbie. I, I love that in the summer. I'm the king of the barbecue. Yeah. Well, that's what I think. <laughs> you are self-appointed title. <laughs> yes, the, the title is being disputed by my dad and I, uh, but there you go. Do you do all of the cooking at home? Yeah. yeah. Fruitcake can't cook. Oh, really? No, she's very funny, but she can't cook and she can't dance. Oh. No, but she's funny. Okay. Oh. So we get on well. And you said that she's a walking stomach. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she is. Yeah. yeah. That's ideal. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Perfect for me. <laughs> but she's good at cleaning. I do the cooking because I'm in charge of pleasure, you see, and she's in charge of cleaning. Okay. And boy, does she does she remind <laughs> me that she do the cleaning. You're you're in charge of pleasure. Yeah. That, okay. That's all my whole ethos. Okay. To have fun and to enjoy myself. <laughs> When asked about your greatest achievement, you said it was The Right Course, which is a charity that you co-founded to transform prison canteens into training restaurants, which is such an amazing thing. Can you tell us how did you first get into that area? The Right Course is something that I started because I started a charity before that. And as a result of that charity, I met a lot of people within the MOJ, probation office, police and all that. So I was visiting prison and I visited ISIS, which is in Thamesmead. And I met the governor, Graham Hawkins, at the time. Uh, and I had another lady called Emily, who was the governor. Anyway, I went to the uh, staff uh, canteen, the staff restaurant, and uh, I thought we could transform that into a very, very simply into a training restaurant for the prisoners, run by the prisoners. You know, they would be cooking, they'd be serving, and it would be for the staff of the prison, for your contractors. We could invite people. And this is how it started. We opened the first restaurant. And then we saw it was successful because, you know, um, I mean, obviously there is an issue with reoffending when you're in prison. So there's, there's three things that stop people from reoffending, having a job, having a place to live and keeping in touch with your friends and family. Mm. And the other 
other thing is we have a huge staff shortage in hospitality. So, I mean, yeah, it makes an, so much sense. It's a no brainer. I mean, there are 90 prisons in the UK. We are operating at the moment in three prisons. We are going to open one in September uh, in Berwyn, and we're looking for three more this year. But really, for us to do something, you know, we need to just. To just to just really open more restaurants in more prison and do it at scale and at pace, mm. um, so that we would not just be a charity. We would be part of another entity that the MOJ we work with, with the goal of running all these restaurants and making sure, just like my old my old um, head teacher was doing, the goal is to make sure that everybody is employed when they finish, and yeah. that's my vision. That's the way we want to do it. Um, so it, it, it's difficult, you know, you work in a, in a, in a highly stressful environment, health and safety is, is paramount. I mean, we had, for example, in one of the prison at one point, because we have, there was drug problems. So the, 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 the restaurant was closed for, for a week. We had to start all over again. These things happen, mm. but in terms of the results of the charity, in terms of the percentage of people who come out of our course and get a job. I mean, it's incredible. I think the results are not good enough. I think they are not where I want to be, but we are like at 65% of, of success, whereas other other scheme would have maybe 5 or 10%. Oh, wow. But for me, I think it's not enough. Yeah. What we're doing is not good enough. We need to train more people. Mm. We need to uh, to work to a higher level, to a higher standards. Mm. Uh, but even though I'm not happy, we're still the best of what's available there because most prisoners in most prisons are in their cell for 23 hours a day. I mean, uh, what hope do you have of redemption, of getting somebody a job, of inspiring somebody if this is the kind of treatment that you give people? Mm. But we have to believe in redemption, in forgiveness. We have to believe in giving people second chances. And I know for some people, it'd be the third, it'd be the fourth, it'd be the fifth chance. But it doesn't matter if you end up in prison. It's because something somewhere down the line has failed. It could be your parents. It could be the community. It could be your school. And, 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 and we have to take responsibility now. We have to say, well, they have to take their responsibility. But I think that as society, you know, we just can't bury our head in the ground because it costs so much money. I mean, never mind the crime that people commit, but it takes a lot of money to send people to prison, look after them. And then if they start all over again, this cycle of crime, then you never finish. Mm. You really never finish. That's an amazing thing to be doing. Let's pause there and talk about the sixth desert island dish. What's your go-to dinner party dish? It is a barbecue season and yeah. I need a suckling pig. Ooh. So I went to my local butcher, William Rose, just down the road there in uh, East Dulwich, and I ordered a very beautiful uh, suckling pig. He cut it in half for me, ready for the barbie. I did a nice marinade with all sorts of mixed herbs and garlics and olive oil. And I just put it on top of the, the suckling pig. It smelled delicious, salt and pepper. And then I cooked it. So my friend came, Ras Kwame from Capi Capital Extra. On, uh, he does a show called uh, Reggae Recipe. Anyway, he said, I don't need pork. Oh, and then no. uh, I was cooking my suckling pig. He said, but I ate that. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a compliment. But it's funny, people who don't eat pork, because Fruitcake mm. says, I don't eat pork. Oh. And the other day she said, why are you cooking here? I said, it's veal. And it was a pork chop. And she said, it's delicious. Fred, I love it. <laughs> because she's got this idea, you know, that pork is not good for you. Mm. But if I tell her she doesn't like it, if I say it's veal, then she likes it and she said it was delicious. And when you have people around for one of these barbecues, other, I know you've already talked about the peaches, but do you tend to serve a pudding? 
Are you a pudding person? Yeah, I mean, oh, uh, what, what can I do? I mean, I could do a tartata, for example. I mean, it's so simple to make a tartata. You, the thing is, when you're cooking, you've got to take the time. You've got to have the time and you've got to have the headspace. Mm-hmm. First of all, for doing your shopping, because it takes a long time to do your shopping in London, because the shopping is not just going to one supermarket. It's going to the shop that does what you like. There's a local shop around the corner there that do beautiful fruit and veg. It's where I buy my fruit and veg. a beautiful fishmonger. There's a beautiful uh, uh, butcher down the road there. And it's just buying the product produce where you get the best produce from that's mm-hmm. what it's about so that takes time yeah. and then you've got to cook you know and if you've got the time you play some music have a glass of wine it's a lovely thing to do isn't it what's your secret to the best tart tata what's my secret i just follow my recipe you know and it's just how you cook it and then the beautiful thing is when you just turn it upside down and you yeah. discover what you've done that's so good that's magic isn't it on desert island dishes we have a cookbook corner so i'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook I have um, two, actually. One was uh, given to me by my mom. It's called Ginette Mathieu. Mm. And it's French recipes from this woman from called Ginette Mathieu, very famous in the 60s and the 70s in France. Mm. She's got loads of cookbooks, very simple uh, cooking, kind of food that my mom likes to cook. And I've got another one called Classic French Recipes, a book that I bought years and years and years ago. And it's all these classic recipes like Boeuf Bourguignon, Cocovin, you know, Vaumarengo, this type type of stuff. And actually I've got a third one, which is the book that I learned to cook when I was at Catering College that was Mm. written by the tutors that I had at Catering College. And this is the book that we were using as students to learn how to cook. And it was brilliant because the book was divided into the different cooking techniques. So, for example, if you know how to do a stew, then, for example, you would have a stew that would be the base, like a boeuf bourguignon. And what are the recipe and variations are there from that boeuf bourguignon? So you start with that base and then you evolve it so that you would have, basically, this is the root of all of five or six recipes. And then you move on to another type of cooking and other type of ingredients. So there is, uh, uh, if you like, a roadmap on how to cook once you understand the principles then it's just a question of repeating it is that like the mother recipe that's what it is yeah right we're on to the final seventh desert island dish what's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island okay well on a desert island let's say a beautiful seafood platter that'd be lovely Mm. with lovely green salad Mm. some nice french fries and then uh, maybe I could have a lovely Côte de Boeuf after, oh. lovely and thinly sliced, oh, with some snails on the side and some bone marrow as well with parsley and garlic. Oh, and, and a tomato salad with a few shallots there, pepper and some salt, a beautiful olive oil. And then what else could I have? And then a creme brulee. Oh, my goodness. Pourquoi pas? That sounds absolutely delicious. So with that, we're going to cast you off to the island. Fred, those are your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It really does make a difference, I promise. I know everyone always says that, but it really does. And it means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. Don't forget to subscribe to the new newsletter, Dinner Tonight. You can head to dinnertonight.substack.com or you can go to desertislanddishes.co and pop your email in there and you'll also find your way to the new newsletter. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week. Bye.